Chapter six of British Highways and Byways from a Motor Car by Thomas Dowler Murphy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Christine Blashford. Chapter six London to Land's End. The road from London to Southampton is one of the oldest in the kingdom and passes many places of historic interest. In early days, this highway, leading from one of the main seaports through the ancient Saxon capital, was of great importance. Over this road we began the trip suggested by the touring secretary of the motor union. As usual, we were late in getting started, and it was well after noon when we were clear of the city. At Kingston-on-Thames, practically a suburb, filled with villas of wealthy Londoners, we stopped for lunch at the Griffin Hotel, a fine old inn whose antiquity was not considered sufficient to atone for bad service, which was sometimes the case. Kingston has a history as ancient as that of the capital itself. Its name is peculiar in that it was not derived from King's Town, but from King's Stone, and at the town crossing is the identical stone, so says tradition, upon which the Saxon kings were crowned. It would seem to one that this historic bit of rock would form a more fitting pedestal for the English coronation chair than the old Scottish stone from Dunstaffnage Castle. After a short run from Kingston, we passed down High Street Guildford, which, a well-qualified authority declares, is one of the most picturesque streets in England. Guildford might well detain for a day or more anyone whose time will permit him to travel more leisurely than ours did. William Cobbett, the author and philosopher, who was born and lived many years nearby, declared it the happiest-looking town he ever knew. Just why, I do not know. The street with the huge town clock projecting halfway across on one side, the 17th-century town hall with its massive Greek portico on the other, and a queerly assorted row of many gabled buildings following its winding way looked odd enough, but as to Guildford's happiness, a closer acquaintance would be necessary." Shortly after leaving the town, the ascent of a two-mile hill brought us to a stretch of upland road which ran for several miles along a tableland lying between pleasantly diversified valleys sloping on either side. From this, a long, gradual descent led directly into Farnham, the native town of William Cobbett. The house where he was born and lived as a boy is still standing as the Jolly Farmer's Inn. One may see the little house which was the birthplace of the Reverend Augustus Toplady, whose hymn, Rock of Ages, has gained worldwide fame. On the hill overlooking the town is the ancient castle, rebuilt in the 16th century, and from that time one of the palaces of the bishops of Winchester. Here, too, lingers one of the ubiquitous traditions of King Charles I, who stopped at Vernon House in West Street while a prisoner in the hands of the parliamentarians, on their way to London. A silk cap which the king presented to his host is proudly shown by one of the latter's descendants, who is now owner of the house. One must be well posted on his route when touring Britain, or he will pass many things of note in sublime ignorance of their existence. Even the road-book is not an infallible guide, for we first knew that we were passing through Chawton when the post-office sign, on the main street of a straggling village, arrested our attention. We were thus reminded that in this quiet little place the inimitable Jane Austen had lived and produced her most notable novels, which are far more appreciated now than in the lifetime of the authoress. An old woman of whom we inquired pointed out the house, a large square building with tiled roof, now used as the home of a working men's club. Less than two miles from Chawton, though not on the Winchester Road, is Selborne, the home of Gilbert White, the naturalist, and famed as one of the quaintest and most retired villages in Hampshire but one would linger long on the way if he paused at every landmark on the Southampton Road. We had already loitered in the short distance which we had travelled until it was growing late, and with open throttle our car rapidly covered the last twenty miles of the fine road leading into Winchester. 
from an historical point of view no town in the kingdom surpasses the proud old city of winchester the saxon capital still remembers her ancient splendour and it was with a manifest touch of pride that the old verger who guided us through the cathedral dwelt on the long line of kings who had reigned at winchester before the norman conquest to him london at best was only an upstart and a usurper why when oxford was shambles and westminster was brambles winchester was in her glory and her glory has never departed from her and never will so long as her great cathedral stands intact guarding its age-long line of proud traditions the exterior is not altogether pleasing the length exceeding that of any cathedral in europe together with the abbreviated tower impresses one with a painful sense of lack of completeness and a failure of proper proportion it has not the splendid sight of durham or lincoln the majesty of the massive tower of canterbury or the grace of the great spire of salisbury but its interior makes full amends no cathedral in all england can approach it in elaborate carvings and furnishings or in interesting relics and memorials here lie the bones of the saxon king ethelwulf father of alfred the great of canute whose sturdy common sense silenced his flatterers and of many others a scion of the usurping norman sleeps here too in the tomb where william rufus was buried with many looking on and few grieving in the north aisle a memorial stone covers the grave of jane austen and a great window to her memory sends its many-coloured shafts of light from above in the south transept rests ike walton prince of fishermen who it would seem to us must have slept more peacefully by some rippling brook during the parliamentary wars winchester was a storm centre and the cathedral suffered severely at the hands of the parliamentarians yet fortunately many of its ancient monuments and furnishings escaped the wrath of the roundhead iconoclasts the cathedral is one of the oldest in england having been mainly built in the ninth century recently it has been discovered that the foundations are giving away to an extent that makes extensive restoration necessary but it will be only restored and not altered in any way but we may not pause long to tell the story of even winchester cathedral in this hasty record of a motor flight through britain and speaking of the motor-car ardent devotee as i am i could not help feeling a painful sense of the inappropriateness of its presence in winchester of its rush through the streets at all hours of the night of its clatter as it climbed the steep hills in the town of the blast of its unmusical horn and of its glaring lights falling weirdly on the old buildings it seemed an intruder in the capital of king alfred there is much else in winchester though the cathedral and its associations may overshadow everything the college one of the earliest educational institutions in the kingdom was founded about thirteen hundred and many of the original buildings stand almost unchanged the abbey has vanished though the grounds still serve as a public garden and of wolvesley palace a castle built in eleven thirty eight only the keep still stands how usual this saying only the keep still stands becomes of english castles thanks to the old builders who made the keep strong and high to withstand time and so difficult to tear down that it escaped the looters of the ages a day might well be given to the vicinity of winchester which teems with points of literary and historic interest in any event one should visit twyford only three miles away often known as the queen of the hampshire villages and famous for the finest yew tree in england it is of especial interest to americans since benjamin franklin wrote his autobiography here while a guest of dr shipley vicar of st asaph whose house a fine elizabethan mansion still stands to salisbury by way of romsey is a fine drive of about thirty miles over good roads and through a very pleasing country long before we reached the town there rose into view its great cathedral spire the loftiest and most graceful in britain a striking landmark from the country for miles around 
Following the winding road and passing through the narrow gateway entering High Street, we came directly upon this magnificent church, certainly the most harmonious in design of any in the kingdom. The situation, too, is unique, the cathedral standing entirely separate from any other building, its grey walls and buttresses rising sheer up from velvety turf, such as is seen in England alone. It was planned and completed within the space of fifty years, which accounts for its uniformity of style, while the construction of most of the cathedrals ran through the centuries with various architecture in vogue at different periods. The interior, however, lacks interest, and the absence of stained glass gives an air of coldness. It seems almost unbelievable that the original stained windows were deliberately destroyed at the end of the 18th century by a so-called architect, James Wyatt, who had the restoration of the cathedral in charge. To his everlasting infamy, Wyatt swept away screens, chapels and porches, desecrated and destroyed the tombs of warriors and prelates, obliterated ancient paintings, flung stained glass by cartloads into the city ditch, and raised to the ground the beautiful old campanile which stood opposite the north porch. That such desecration should be permitted in a civilised country only a century ago indeed seems incredible. No one who visits Salisbury will forget Stonehenge, the most remarkable relic of prehistoric man to be found in Britain. Nearly everyone is familiar with pictures of this solitary circle of stones standing on an eminence of Salisbury Plain, but one who has not stood in the shadow of these gigantic monoliths can have no idea of their rugged grandeur. Their mystery is deeper than that of Egypt's Sphinx, for we know something of early Egyptian history, but the very memory of the men who reared the stones on Salisbury Plain is forgotten who they were, why they built this strange temple, or how they brought for long distances these massive rocks that would tax modern resources to transport, we have scarcely a hint. The stones stand in two concentric circles, those of the inner ring being about half the height of the outer ones. Some of the stones are more than twenty feet high and extend several feet into the ground. There are certain signs which seem to indicate that Stonehenge was the temple of some early sun-worshipping race, and Sir Norman Lockyer, who has made a special study of the subject, places the date of construction about 1680 BC. No similar stone is found in the vicinity, hence it is proof positive that the builders of Stonehenge must have transported the enormous monoliths for many miles. The place lies about eight miles north of Salisbury. We went over a rather lonely and uninteresting road by the way of Amesbury, which is two miles from Stonehenge. We returned by a more picturesque route, following the River Avon to Salisbury and passing through Milston, a quaint little village where Joseph Addison was born in 1672. A few miles south of Salisbury we entered New Forest, an ancient royal hunting domain covering nearly 300 square miles and containing much of the most pleasing woodland scenery in England. This is extremely diversified, but always beautiful. Glades and reaches of gentle park and meadow and open heath-like stretches contrast wonderfully with the dark masses of huge oaks and beeches, under some of which daylight never penetrates. We stopped for the night at Lyndhurst, directly in the centre of the forest, and sometimes called the capital of New Forest. It looks strangely new for an English town, and the large church, built of red brick and white stone, shows its recent origin. In this church is a remarkable altar fresco, which was executed by the late Lord Leighton. The fine roads and splendid scenery might occupy at least a day if time permitted, but if, like us, one must hasten onward, a run over the main roads of New Forest will give opportunity to see much of its sylvan beauty. Our route next day through the narrow byways of Dorsetshire was a meandering one. From Lyndhurst we passed through Christchurch, Blandford and Dorchester, and came for the night to Yeovil. 
We passed through no place of especial note, but no day of our tour afforded us a better idea of the more retired rural sections of England. By the roadside everywhere were the thatched roof cottages with their flower gardens, and here and there was an ancient village which, to all appearances, might have been standing quite the same when the conqueror landed in Britain. Oftentimes the byways were wide enough for only one vehicle, but were slightly broadened in places to afford opportunity for passing. Many of the crossings lacked the familiar signboards, and the winding byways, with nothing but the map for a guide, were often confusing, and sharp turns between high hedges made careful driving necessary. At times we passed between avenues of tall trees, and again unexpectedly dropped into some quiet village nestling in the Dorset Hills. One of the quaintest of these, not even mentioned in Baydecker, is Cern Abbas, a straggling village through which the road twisted along, a little old-world community seemingly severed from modern conditions by centuries. It rather lacked the cosy picturesqueness of many English villages. It seemed to us that it wanted much of the bloom and shrubbery. Everywhere were the grey stone houses with thatched roofs, sagging walls, and odd little windows with square or diamond-shaped panes set in iron casements. Nowhere was there a structure that had the slightest taint of newness. The place is quite unique. I do not recall another village that impressed us in just the same way. Our car seemed strangely out of place as it cautiously followed the crooked main street of the town, and the attention bestowed on it by the smaller natives indicated that a motor was not a common sight in Cern Abbas. Indeed, we should have missed it ourselves had we not wandered from the main road into a narrow lane that led to the village. While we much enjoyed our day in the Dorset byways, our progress had necessarily been slow. In Yeovil, we found an old English town, apparently without any important history, but a prosperous centre for a rich farming country. The place is neat and clean and has a beautifully kept public park, a feature of which the average English town appears more appreciative than the small American city. From Yeovil to Torquay, through Exeter, with a stop at the latter place, was an unusually good day's run. The road was more hilly than any we had passed over heretofore, not a few of the grades being styled dangerous, and we had been warned by an English friend that we should find difficult roads and steep hills in Devon and Cornwall. However, to one who had driven over some of our worst American roads, even the bad roads of England looked good, and the dangerous hills, with their smooth surface and generally uniform grade, were easy for our moderate-powered motor. Exeter enjoys the distinction of having continuously been the site of a town or city for a longer period than is recorded of any other place in England. During the Roman occupation it was known as a city, and it is believed that the streets, which are more regular than usual, and which generally cross each other at right angles, were first laid out by the Romans. It is an important town of about 50,000 inhabitants, with thriving trade and manufactures, and modern improvements are in evidence everywhere. The cathedral, though not one of the largest or most imposing, is remarkable for the elaborate carving of the exterior. The west front is literally covered with life-sized statues set in niches in the wall, but the figures are all sadly time-worn, many of them having almost crumbled away. Evidently, the roundheads were considerate of Exeter Cathedral that such a host of effigies escaped destruction at their hands, and they were not very well disposed towards Exeter either, as it was always a royalist stronghold. Possibly it was spared because the Cromwellians found it useful as a place of worship, and in order to obtain peace and harmony between the two factions of the army, the cathedral was divided into two portions by a high brick wall through the centre, the Independents holding forth on one side and the Presbyterians on the other. The road from Exeter to Torquay follows the coast for some distance, affording many fine views of the ocean. We were now in the limestone country, and the roads are exceedingly dusty in dry weather. 
The dust, in the form of a fine white powder, covers the trees and vegetation, giving the country here and there an almost ghostly appearance. No wonder that in this particular section there is considerable prejudice against the motor, on account of its great propensity to stir up the dust. So far as we ourselves were concerned, we usually left it behind us, and it troubled us only when some other car got in ahead of us. Torquay is England's Palm Beach, a seacoast resort town where the temperature rarely falls below 40 degrees, thanks to the warm current of the Gulf Stream, and where the sea breezes keep down the summer heat, which seldom rises above 60 degrees. It is especially a winter resort, although the hotels keep open during the year. Most of the town is finely situated on a high promontory, overlooking a beautiful harbour, studded with islands and detached rocks that half remind one of Capri. From our hotel window we had a glorious ocean view, made the more interesting for the time being by a dozen of King Edward's men of war, supposed to be defending Torquay against the enemy of a mimic naval warfare. On the opposite side of Tor Bay is the quiet little fishing village of Brixham, the landing place of Prince William of Orange. We reached here early on a fine June day when everything was fresh after heavy showers during the night. The houses rise in terraces up the sharp hillside fronting the harbour, which was literally a forest of fishing boat masts. A rather crude stone statue of William stands on the quay, and a brass footprint on the shore marks the exact spot where the Dutch prince first set foot in England, accompanied by an army of 13,000 men. Our car attracted a number of urchins who crowded around it, and though we left it unguarded for an hour or more to go out on the seawall and look about the town, not one of the fisher lads ventured to touch it or to molest anything, an instance of the law-abiding spirit which we found everywhere in England. From Brixham, an hour's drive over bad roads brought us to Dartmouth, whither we had been attracted by the enthusiastic language of an English writer who asserts that there is scarcely a more romantic spot in the whole of England than Dartmouth. Spread out on one of the steep slopes of the Dart, it overlooks the deep-set river toward the sea. Steep wooded banks rising out of the water's edge give the winding of the estuaries a solemn mystery which is wanting in meadows and ploughland. In the midst of scenery of this character, and it must have been richer still a few centuries back, the inhabitants of Dartmouth made its history. As we approached the town, the road continually grew worse until it was little better than the average unimproved country highway in America, and the sharp loose stones everywhere were ruinous on tyres. It finally plunged sharply down to a steamboat ferry, over which we crossed the Dart and landed directly in the town. There are few towns in England more charmingly located than old Dartmouth, and a hundred years ago it was an important seaport, dividing honours about equally with Plymouth. The road to Dartmouth was unusually trying. The route which we took to Plymouth was by odds the worst of equal distance we found anywhere. We began with a precipitous climb out of the town, up a very steep hill over a mile long, with many sharp turns that made the ascent all the more difficult. We were speedily lost in a network of unmarked byways, running through a distressingly poor-looking and apparently quite thinly inhabited country. After a deal of studying the map and the infrequent signboards, we brought up in a desolate-looking little village, merely a row of grey stone slate-roofed houses on either side of the way, and devoid of a single touch of the picturesque which so often atones for the poverty of the English cottages. No plot of shrubbery or flower garden broke the grey monotony of the place. We had seen nothing just like it in England, though some of the Scotch villages which we saw later matched it very well. Here, a native gave us the cheerful information that we had come over the very road we should not have taken, that just ahead of us was a hill where the infrequent motor-cars generally stalled, but he thought that a good strong car could make it all right. Our car tackled the hill bravely enough, but slowed to a stop before reaching the summit. 
but by unloading everybody except the driver and with more or less coaxing and adjusting it was induced to try it again with a rush that carried it through the grade though very steep was not so much of an obstacle as the deep sand with which the road was covered we encountered many steep hills and passed villages nearly as unprepossessing as the first one before we came to the main plymouth exeter road as excellent a highway as one could wish it was over this that our route had originally been outlined but our spirit of adventure led us into the digression i have tried to describe it was trying at the time but we saw a phase of england that we otherwise would have missed and have no regrets for the strenuous day in the devonshire byways plymouth with the adjoining towns of devonport and stonehouse is one of the most important seaports in the kingdom the combined population being about two hundred thousand the harbour is one of the best and affords safe anchorage for the largest ocean-going vessels it is protected by a stupendous granite breakwater costing many millions and affording a delightful promenade on a fine day plymouth is the principal government naval port and its ocean commerce is gaining rapidly on that of liverpool to americans it appeals chiefly on account of its connection with the pilgrim fathers who sailed from its harbour on the mayflower in sixteen twenty a granite block set in the pier near the oldest part of the city is supposed to mark the exact spot of departure of the gallant little ship on the hazardous voyage whose momentous outcome was not then dreamed of i could not help thinking what a fine opportunity is offered here for some patriotic american millionaire to erect a suitable memorial to commemorate the sailing of the little ship fraught with its wonderful destiny the half-day spent about the old city was full of interest but the places which we missed would make a most discouraging list it made us feel that one ought to have two or three years to explore britain instead of a single summer's vacation from plymouth to penzance through truro runs the finest road in cornwall broad well kept and with few steep grades it passes through a beautiful section and is bordered in many places by the immense parks of country estates in some of these the woods were seemingly left in their natural wild state though close inspection showed how carefully this appearance was maintained by judicious landscape gardening in many of the parks the rhododendrons were in full bloom and their rich masses of colour wonderfully enlivened the scenery everything was fresh and bright it had been raining heavily the night before and the air was free from the dust that had previously annoyed us it would be hard to imagine anything more inspiring than the vistas which opened to us as we sped along the road usually followed the hills in gentle curves but at places it rose to splendid points of vantage from which to view the delightful valleys then again it lost itself under great overarching trees and as we came too rapidly down a steep hill on entering bodmin the road was so heavily shaded that we were near our undoing the loose sand had been piled up by the rain and the dense shade prevented the road from drying the car took a frightful skid and by a mere hair's breadth escaped disastrous collision with a stone wall but we learned something after leaving truro an ancient town with a recently established cathedral the road to penzance though excellent is without special interest it passes through the copper mining section of cornwall and the country is dotted with abandoned mines a few are still operated but it has come to the point where as a certain englishman has said cornwall must go to nevada for her copper and there are more cornish miners in the western states than there are in their native shire penzance is another of the south of england resort towns and is beautifully situated on mounts bay one indeed wonders at the great number of sea-coast resorts in britain but we must remember that there are forty millions of people in the kingdom who need breathing places as well as a number of americans who come to these resorts the hotels at these places are generally excellent from the english point of view which differs somewhat from the american probably there is no one point on which the difference is greater than the precise temperature that constitutes personal comfort and makes a fire in the room necessary 
on a chilly muggy day when an american shivers and calls for a fire in the generally diminutive grate in his room the native enjoys himself or even complains of the heat and is astonished at his thin-skinned cousin who must have his room according to the british notion heated to suffocation the hotel manager always makes a very adequate charge for fires in guest rooms and is generally chary about warming the corridors or public parts of the hotel in one of the large london hotels which actually boasts of steam heat in the hallways we were amazed on a chilly may day to find the pipes warm and a fine fire blazing in the great fireplace in the lobby the chambermaid explained the astonishing phenomenon the week before several americans had complained frequently of the frigid atmosphere of the place without exciting much sympathy from the management but after they had left the hotel it was taken as an evidence of good faith and the heat was turned on but this digression has taken me so far away from penzance that i may as well close this chapter with it end of chapter six